welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. <laughs> this week, we talk about the impacts of climate change in Australia and in the Himalayas. And we discuss recent new data on the concentration of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. Plus, we speak to Elizabeth Colbert, activist, New Yorker journalist and author of the recent book, Under a White Sky. And we have music from Sonder Urians. Thanks for being here. So we have many important and exciting issues to get to this week, but I just wanted to bring one data point before we delve into them. I've been paying quite close attention to the Twitter feed of our good friend Alok Sharma, friend of the podcast and recent guest. And let's see, about a week ago, he had a lovely picture of you, Christiana, you and him having dinner together somewhere in Costa Rica. It looked like a lovely evening. And then since then, his feed has taken a distinctly Costa Rican turn. There was one just a couple of days ago where he says, brilliant to hear ideas and innovation on climate action from carbon neutral Costa Rica. I encourage all friends around the world to follow Costa Rica's climate leadership. What did you talk about at that dinner? You seem to have really turned him into one of these Costa Rican advocates. Well, it's not hard to do that, is it, Tom? <laughs> I mean, as we know on this podcast, Costa Rica dum, does dum, happen to be dum. a wonderful country. And now he knows that uh, for himself because he was here for, I think, 24, maybe even 48 hours. So thank you so much to the incoming president of COP26 for, it was a very long trip for him. He had to uh, fly through the United States to Costa Rica and then back to London. So our gratitude to him for coming here and seeing uh, personally what is possible on climate change and on biodiversity. How, how was the dinner? I, is he feeling good about stuff? Sorry, Paul. No, no, no. I, I, something's happened, but you carry on, Christian. Dinner. Yes, he was He was very kind. The British ambassador invited me for dinner with the incoming president. Um, and we had quite a engaging conversation, went through everything uh, that is entailed in preparing for a COP and executing a COP. Um, and uh, it was... Um, yeah, it was it, it was fun. We laughed a lot, uh, and we got to uh, quite a few serious issues. So um, we'll see. I hope it was helpful. Nice. It certainly seems to me to be quite influential because I've just seen a tweet from the Queen, which I've actually never seen before. I think it's the first one ever. And it says, I have just spoken with Alok Sharma, my minister, and following his trip to the Americas, we have concluded we will abolish the British Army in 2024. Can you believe that? See? There you go. See, oh, the, I think Costa Rica's influence really reaching out. <laughs> Reverberating across I think we're the world. Get, I think we're going to get mail about Paul's accent. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, you guys well? All good? Should we delve into the issues at hand? Why not, yes. Tom? Why not? As ever, we are going and looking at three key issues that we're bringing to, to the podcast, um, the causes of outrage, optimism. And this week, why don't you go first, Paul? Okay, it's on me. Um, I was really struck by reporting that uh, parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere have risen to 417 per million, up 50% on pre-industrial times. And I mean, that's just yeah. so huge. And I was thinking about what gets reported on the news, you know, the FTSE or the S&P, you know, these little stock indices that are like little little flies or wasps flying, this tiny little buzzing noise that means absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, the radiative forcing of our atmosphere has gone up over 50% since pre-industrial times. And it's like, 
I just it's just that thing about the human lifespan you know these things all seem the same to us because we only live you know 80 years or something like that uh, you know what was it in my life you know that I've said it before the Berlin Wall fell and the Northern Ice Cap melted Berlin Wall was up for 28 years and the Northern Ice Cap was there for 2 million years but it all looks the same through that little that little letterbox of human lifespan but it's really shocking you know there's no grown-ups there's no god there's no world government there's just our power to change or stay the same and it just really brought it home to me and I wanted to kind of alert our listeners to that key indicator parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere measured at Mara or I can never pronounce that Mora Aura Mara Aura <laughs> an atoll in the Pacific measured at an atoll in the Pacific so it's not influenced by any ambient CO2 um, Keeling started it in 1958 I think and it is the extraordinary signature of what we're doing and why we are having this podcast well just just to bring it home there um, Paul you know, when we started beating these records, I used to encourage audiences um, to take one breath of air and realize that they were the first human beings to ever breathe that concentration. Mm. And and here we are again, right? So we are the first human beings breathing that concentration of CO2. That has not occurred since human beings have been on this planet. It's just for a yeah. long Mind time. Mind-boggling. It's high Absolutely. as well. I mean, 417. I mean, you know, for so long, we've thought about 350. We've thought about 400. To now be at 417 and plowing up, what is it, two parts per million a year, three, somewhere between two and three, you know, that's a pretty significant clip. And, you know, terrifying statistics and terrifying concentrations, like 500 parts per million or more, are now, you know, just a decade or a couple of decades away. So it really has to be just a profound wake-up call. We've got to get that number down uh, as soon as possible, and that is the focus of the whole world's attention and not, I'm sorry to say, uh, the stock market indices. So that's my piece for the week. And just to help you out, Paul, in case it's helpful, it's Mauna Loa. <laughs> Mauna Loa. Thank you very much, Christiana. There is always You're welcome. Um, education and inspiration from you where I'm falling slightly flat. And I've looked at that a thousand times. Mauna Loa. Mauna Loa. Nicely done. Now, the impacts of that are also quite profound, of course. And Christiana, I think you were going to bring something this week about the impacts of what that 417 really means. Yeah, um, well, one small indication, right? I'm hoping that everyone who listens to the, this podcast remembers the bushfires in Australia scarcely 18 months ago. Well, we have now gone from bushfires to floods. Uh, there have already been 18,000 people evacuated from their homes. Luckily, no deaths, no lives lost. But rivers are just growing so, so quickly that people need to leave. They're evacuating themselves. They're evacuating their animals. This has been, uh, again, a very, very surprising event for um, Australia. And some of the um, Bureau of Meteorology people are saying this is an event that exceeds anything that has occurred in the past 50 or 60 years. It's just very odd, right? And I, I don't remember who coined the word climate weird weirding, but mm. this is definitely climate weirding. Yeah. We, sorry, what were you going to say, Tom? I was going to say it was Amory Lovins. 
Well, this is definitely <laughs> weirding. The fact that we have the bushfires, then we have um, a drought that came uh, extended after that. And now we have these, these floods. We haven't had these extreme weather conditions in such quick succession um, in years. And in fact, the Climate Council in Australia is already saying, of course, that these rainfall and these floods are not caused by climate change, but they are coming much more frequently and much more intensely because of the effects of climate change. So climate weirding in Australia. Question is, when are they going to stop political weirding in Australia? <laughs> yeah. Deep connection between those two. Hmm. Yeah, no, they don't seem to make much progress on that. And also, I mean, just the really alarming element of it, of course, is the magnified impacts on ecosystems. You have a wildfire rush through somewhere, devastating the vegetation. You then lead to a flood 12 months later. The fact of the wildfire means that the natural vegetation is unable to stop it. That leads to more flooding. You know, that whips away more vegetation. This is the kind of negative cycle that we get into that is actually going to just devastate parts of the planet if we don't get on top of it. It's such a worrying signal. I saw that I saw that sign too. And we've got lots of friends in Australia and my God, they've just been through these wildfires less than 12 months ago and now they're facing this. Yeah, and it's not just the vegetation, right? It's the animals. I mean, do you yeah, remember how course. many animals we lost in the bushfires? Yeah. Now we don't have a count yet on what the impact is here on fauna, but it's not going to be zero. Yeah, and just to add also, um, I think that, you know, if, if you want to be like positive, it's perhaps the wrong phrase, but if you want to see something that comes from this, you, you know, the reason why we are going to increasingly win all these victories that we have to win changing the whole energy system of the world is because these extreme events act like a giant advertising campaign with an ever bigger budget and the more frightening it is i mean i don't believe people will get used to it i'm always shocked i think people are more and more aware so it's great that that awareness is rising even though our hearts go out to the people experiencing this tragedy well it backs in a little bit to the thing i was going to bring this week as well which is really just devastating um and this is from uh so a similar cause for outrage in terms of the physical impacts of climate change there was a, a report in the ft over the weekend which i would really encourage listeners to to go to if they haven't seen it uh called crisis in the himalayas and it looks at this kind of explosive cocktail of climate change and aggressive road and dam building in this incredibly geologically unstable region and it shows that temperatures in the himalayas have risen faster than other mountain ranges but what happened was that there was this situation as a result of the melting glaciers and a rock slide in nearby mountains that created a tsunami of water, stones and mud that just hurtled through this deep river valley. I mean, I've been there years ago to that part of India and it's heartbreaking to think this happened. 200 people are believed to have been consumed by this lethal sludge. And it's just, again, like this wake-up call. I'd call it an early wake-up call, except it's not. There is a billion people that are reliant on that water and 800 million who live in the area of risk in these deep valleys. And scientists estimate that the Himalayan glaciers will recede by a third by 2100, even if we can cap global temperature rise at 1.5 degrees and losses will be far higher if that target is missed. And just in terms of the human impact, I mean, we've talked about climate justice before. Most of these people have done basically nothing to cause climate change. And whether they're reliant mm -hmm. on the water from the Himalayas or they're living in these valleys and they can't escape these terrible impacts, it's just, it should for all of us 
that our positions where we can do something about it that have a disproportionate contribution to climate, it should spur us to more action and we should not get used to it, as you say, Paul. Mm -hmm. Can I add just one other thing that I think um, is related to all of this? Um, It's a bit overpowering, all the information we've just got, right? And, you know, you might be feeling anxious. There's an absolutely brilliant article by Sarah Jacquette Ray in Scientific American. And she said, you know, a lot of people, you know, rich people in the North perhaps are saying, what can I stop do? What can I do to stop feeling so anxious about climate change? And what can I do to save the planet? And what hope is there? And she points out, actually, the question for people with privilege, she says, is who am I? How am I connected to all of this? And what she's really observing is that oppressed and marginalized people have developed traditions of resilience out of necessity. And they've learned that persistence is, and I quote her here, non-negotiable when your mental, physical, and reproductive health are on the line. So please let's focus on turning that anxiety that we may be feeling into self-study, study of our own role in the world, and turn that into changes in action that will help address this problem. So I just wanted to kind of put that spin on it. Nice. Very good. Christiane is very thoughtful. I'm very impressed, Paul. I am very impressed. <laughs> I'm so happy when you say that. Because, because he I lives crave, for these moments. Um, what's the word? Um, um, <laughs> approval from people I admire. And I'm, you know, well, it's just a happy day. I'm going to probably uh, go for a walk later and buy myself a croissant, even though it's nearly 9 p.m. here. <laughs> Okay, so but this is this is kind of a tough episode, right? In a minute, we're going to go to a conversation with Elizabeth Colbert, who wrote this uh, devastating book called Under a White Sky, which is basically about the necessity, likelihood, inevitability of us geoengineering the planet. Um, and that's a tough conversation. So we'll delve into that in just a minute. Just before we do, there's been quite an interesting week for us at the podcast. Uh, we, of course, released our episode a week ago on Race to Zero with electrifying transport uh, with our Formula E friends. We then released a special bonus just a couple of days ago called What the Hail Does This Mean? with our friend Thomas Hale. Now, Thomas is someone we've known for a very long time. He's a professor at Oxford. He really understands as much or more than anyone about this transition to net zero, what it means, what the terms mean, etc. So we would encourage you, if there's anything confusing you about this transition to net zero, what do the terms mean? Paul, you're looking like you're going to take us up. What the hell does that mean? Exactly. I asked myself. If you say to yourself... And so what do I do, Tom? You just tweet us. Send us a tweet. Tweet it to us directly. We'll have Thomas on every month or so, and we can ask him questions. We'll put your questions to him. In this episode, which I talked to him uh, a couple of weeks ago, What's the difference between net zero and carbon neutrality or climate neutrality or Paris aligned? We get him to delve in and explain all of it. So it's quite revealing and interesting, actually. I would encourage you to listen to it. Now, any more business before we turn to our interview? Well, just one thing. We've had some very positive comments about the uh, podcast from Mr. and Mrs. Phillips uh, in Scotland. (laughs) And also... I love Mr. and Mrs. Phillips. And Paul, uh, uh, Weltle man from Kentucky, sent this via Apple Podcasts. He said, I've been listening to the podcast for months now on Stitcher and I need to open an Apple podcast in order to rate it. I feel better now that I have finally done so. Outrage and Optimism is inspiring, motivational, entertaining and educational. I'm a Sierra Club member and I've asked all of my fellow Sierrans in northern Kentucky to give it a listen. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for those kind words, Paul. Very greatly appreciated. Nice name too. (laughs) (laughs) just saying absolutely no greatly appreciated and please do send in the reviews really appreciated um we always read them and some of them get read out on the podcast 
Now, we have a great conversation for you this week. Elizabeth Colbert has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1999. She is the author of many brilliant books, including Field Notes from a Catastrophe, The Sixth Extinction, and she was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 2015. We were actually with her when she got the Pulitzer Prize, which she was very cool about it. Do you remember that, Christiana? We were with her in Munich when... I do, I yeah. do. She was, she was so nonchalant about it. Yeah, we were like, well, this is like the <laughs> Nobel so Prize. Cool. Yeah, it was very how, how do people achieve that? I would be, you know, stuck to the roof for about Good four writing, weeks. Paul. It's very good writing. <laughs> <laughs> so her latest book, Under a White Sky, explores the harmful, transformative impact humans have had on the planet and the ramifications this has when considering solutions to mitigating the effects of climate change. The title, Under a White Sky, refers to the colour that climate scientists believe the sky would become as a consequence of some solar geoengineering. And she refers to the book as being about a habit of mind, that human habit which leads us to spiral towards intervention on a grander scale each time we're faced with a human-made problem in the natural world rather than consider and modify our initial actions that cause the problem to exist in the first place. I cannot think of a better definition for where we are with climate change. This is Elizabeth Colbert. Sadly, I was able to listen to this interview, but my bandwidth was not good enough that I could actually participate. But you two did a brilliant job, and we'll be back afterwards for more discussion. Elizabeth, how delightful to see you again, because I'm seeing you on my screen. Um, I don't believe I've seen you since we spent quite a bit of time together way back in 2015 in preparation for the most amazing New Yorker long article that you wrote, for which I thank you again. And, you know, one of the things that was really jaw-dropping for me about your article is that you so clearly captured the conundrum of the role that I was playing at the UN. And you said at that time, Figueres may possess the very highest ratio of responsibility, preventing global collapse, to authority, practically none. And <laughs> Did I know, say that? You yeah. did, Elizabeth. <laughs> and I have to thank you because it was the first time that that had been so crystal clear for me. I had sort of felt it and I was, you know, trying to deal with that differential, um, right, that ratio of the, just such a difference there. Um, and when I read your article, I went, oh, that's why. <laughs> that explains a lot. <laughs> that's why I wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> that's why. So, so thank you so much. Thank you for the time that you well, put I'm in. Glad I could, I'm glad I could clarify that. Well, I want to thank you. That was a lot of, that was a lot of fun hanging out with you um, in Bonn, where I have not been since then. Indeed, indeed. In, in the metropolis of Bonn. Exactly. Um, but you know, Elizabeth, as, um, as we move on now to your new book, it just strikes us that that brilliant sentence of yours is where we are again in the world, because we all share a global common shared responsibility here of preventing global collapse. So I wanted to invite you to talk to us a little bit about Under a White Sky, 
How do you see that, which you saw in the UN role? How do you see that? Because you, you speak about it without using the same phrase, but that undertone is present in your book. You know, the idea sort of theme of the book is the ways that we have intervened in planet Earth. Some of these interventions are regional. Some of them, like climate change, are on a planetary scale and are now faced with some pretty difficult, you know, or we're, we've jammed ourselves up, let's put it that way, and now are contemplating various new forms of intervention to counteract the old. And the book is really about that sort of habit of mind, that human habit, it seems now, at least in the 21st century, of reaching for the next thing that's going to solve the old thing, as opposed to um, and a whole different book could have been written, and many whole diff different books have been written, I should say, considering you know the billions of social actions that are really um, another possibility. But we don't seem able, as you suggested, to get our act together um, to agree on what those are or to actually do them, even if we did agree on what they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How's that? Mm -hmm. And so we're faced... In a, we're in a pretty um, difficult jam, I would say, right now. I'm sure everyone on this, you know, call today agrees with me. We've just let too, we've we've intervened so, you know, we're so far into this process. Uh, climate change being unfortunately just one, although there's sort of preeminent example, I suppose, that we can't go back. You know, we're just not. It's just geophysically very, very difficult. Uh, but we can talk about, you know, ways people are talking about how you might accomplish that. Um, and going forward also seems, you know, very, very, very difficult. So we just sit here kind of um, talking a lot. I would say the one thing I would say since we um, last spoke is there's, you know, certainly here in the U.S. where I'm sitting, there is a lot, lot more conversation about what we should be doing. And we do have a new administration. So to speak to the optimism part of the this podcast, there is a certain optimism here, but that's very, very tempered by an increasing understanding of just what a heavy lift this is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, as as you say, you, you the the book points out um, that there is a tension there between what I would like to call nostalgia of nature. Uh, what was nature like before the Anthropocene started? How many different species did we have? Um, and, and there is a lot of nostalgia for that. And as you say, geophysically, we, we simply can't pull the clock back. Um, but there's a tension between that nostalgia that we all have a part of, right? We all have that love for, for, for nature and for what we know nature was. And then there's a tension between that and let's call it a pretty, I don't know, maybe a simplistic um, reaction to just throw technology at this. Let's just throw technology and, and see what happens. And, and yet even that simplistic quote unquote solution, we haven't really agreed upon. So, so what is the way forward? Oh, Christiane, I was hoping you were going to tell me that. No, no, you uh, have to tell us that. You are the Pulitzer Prize winner on books on exactly. climate change. Exactly. You know, I want to say that the book really reflects 
honestly my feelings um, on some level not you know entirely it's obviously a constructed object but I really I really honestly don't know so for example at the center of the book is a story about a project that's been dubbed the super coral project and the yep. super coral project was initiated by a very dynamic um, British scientist or she was British by birth uh, named Ruth Gates who ran a Marine Institute in Hawaii and very, very sadly um, passed away a couple of years ago, really in, in the middle of this project. But I went to talk to her really probably about a year after I met you, Christiana. And the point of the project was, well, you know, as we discussed, you're not, you're not getting the oceans of the past back. You're not getting the heat out of the oceans. You're not getting all of that CO2 that we've already effectively poured into the oceans, which is changing the chemistry of the oceans. And coral reefs, as I'm sure you know, your listeners are aware, are do not like these changes to the oceans. They're doing really badly. Something like half of the corals on the Great Barrier Reef have been killed, have died off in the last 30 years. Okay, so that's not a good trend line. And Ruth's, you know, attitude was, well, we can we can stand around wringing our hands and wishing that we could get the oceans of the past back and the reefs of the past back. Um, but that's not or, happening. Right. Or we can try or, to intervene again and we can try to make reefs that are more resilient. Now, this is a really, and this struck me as a really interesting idea and sort of opening up this new chapter in our you know, long and rather vexed history of, of intervening in nature and it raises a lot of questions. Um, it raised a lot of questions, you know, in my mind, it raises a lot of questions in scientific circles. And the first question, obviously, is simply, is it possible? You know, that's a, an unanswered question at this point. This project, you know, in the scheme of things in the world, it's a tiny little research project, right? The Great Barrier Reef is the size of Italy. If you were, in fact, able to breed up, this was basically a conventional it, it, you'd basically call it a breeding project, except that when we breed creatures for domestication or for our own purposes for agriculture, they become very often, we all know, you know, a cow has been, is not going to survive in the wild. They're, they're not, um, you know, the very products that make them domesticated are the, are the properties that make them Ill, dependent on human assistance. And we don't want a Great Barrier Reef where we're basically have created these corals that can only survive with human assistance. So it's not clear whether you simply can uh, create corals that are more resilient uh, through conventional sort of these conventional crossbreeding methods. That brings us to the next step, which is could you do it if you did genetic engineering? That's a question very much on the horizon. I think people are going yep. to be increasingly asking that. Um, and then you get to the question of, well, okay, let's say you could do that. You know, there are a million questions here that we could unpack, but, you know, let's say you could do that. Well, you now have a, a reef that has to be manipulated by humans, re, you know, repopulated with genetically modified corals, let's say. Is that, is that the future that we want? And then you're faced with a question you know, instinctively, I'm sure many people are going to say, no, that's anathema. But you do have to raise the question, well, what if your alternative is no coral reefs? You know, this mm -hmm. is the choice that we may be facing. They're really hard choices. 
the best case scenario is that we're facing really hard choices. How's that? Uh, Between, between, let's say a genetically modified reef and no reef that, that suggests that the genetically modified reef is possible, which we really don't know yet. Hmm. Because of the implications of the reef on the entire marine life, right? Not just because of the reef. Exactly. Something like a quarter of all marine species it's estimated, spend at least part of their lifespan on a reef. <laughs> I mean, this, um, these, these questions about uh, interventions, you know, you talked about coupled human and natural systems and, you know, whether, whether we can try and run, you know, like millions of species as some kind of giant Disney theme park. I'm, I'm not all that confident we're going to manage it. But I mean, I, I, I do yeah. um, salute you for, for yeah, sorry, no, I, I think that that's the question of whether it's even doable is, you know, definitely a huge one. If that question sort of has to be answered before you even answer the question of whether you'd want to do it. But yeah, I think there's a theory in systems thinking that sort of says, you, you know, you can't uh, control a system where your number of controls is, is, is smaller than the number of variables in the system. And there's kind of infinity variables as soon as you get to any decent amount of nature. So, yeah, you know, I, I'm not all that confident about it. But you know, I totally, you know, salute your vision looking at geoengineering, which is something that, that you know, has fascinated a lot of people in climate change for a long time. And essentially, the big idea is that, you know, we've got these tipping points that we might arrive at at any minute and we have to do something. Uh, the title of the book, you know, um, putting, you know, sulfate aerosols in the sky or whatever, you know, that might turn the sky white, <laughs> you know, white would become the new blue. This is pretty shocking. You know, I was just trying to think about how to frame it Um for those who are familiar with Shakespeare's Richard III, you know, he's he has a pretty bad career and he ends up killing more and more people to consolidate his power. And at one point he says, you know, he is so far in blood that sin will pluck on sin. And I did get a sense that we might be putting ourselves in a position whereby we were kind of dependent upon certain kind of interventions such that we couldn't kind of really uh, row back from that position. Is that really what you're warning us about? You know, that, that you know, you go down this road of, of, of a kind of cosmetic surgery for, for the climate. And, and as things get more and more complicated, you're not going to be able to kind of get back. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that that tension between, you know, it's a very much a similar conundrum to, you know, would you prefer a genetically modified reef to no reef, let's say. Now, you know, solar geoengineering is a very creepy idea, obviously, Uh, you know, pouring some kind of aerosols uh, into the stratosphere to, you know, because we can't stop ourselves from emitting CO2. But a case can be made, and a case was made to me quite eloquently, I think, by scientists who are working on this, um, you know, look, we may well find ourselves in a pretty big jam up uh, mm-hmm. where there's a humanitarian disaster or an ecosystem collapse. And no one has a very good answer to that. As we all know, even if we were, let's say we were to reach global carbon neutrality by 2050, something I think is not to overuse this word, fantastically optimistic. Um, we haven't, you know, stopped climate change. We've, we've simply, you know, after a few decades, let's say a debated figure, you know, we would reach a new new equilibrium, but, you know, the ice sheets are going to continue to melt. We know that there are very long, there's a very long tail to climate change. Um, and we just are increasingly confronted with very unhappy surprises. I mean, I don't know if you saw that 
piece today with beautiful graphics from the Times about, you know, the the uh, overturning circulation in the Atlantic and, you know, is oh, that yeah. going to reach a tipping point? So there are, um, you know, there are the known unknowns and there are the unknown unknowns. And, you know, do we want to have some uh, arrow in our quiver that could potentially counteract, you know, some disaster. And I think that that, you know, while that's very much criticized, I don't know if as a, as a moral hazard, you know, raising this possibility is just going to encourage people to, you know, pour more carbon into the atmosphere. And I think that's a very, very legitimate concern. I really, really do. Uh, but I also do understand the argument, well, consider the alternatives, you know, what's your answer to um, mm -hmm. a potential you know, famine. <laughs> what what are the what are the options here? There are no good options. Well, we're going to have to do something. And can I can I ask you a question related to to, to the question you pose? Um, it's a lot easier to ask questions and answer them, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. Um, you know, in the in the in the OECD, you know, in the more advanced economies, I don't, I you know, in in terms of the the, the basic human needs, you know, shelter, sufficient food, clothing, heat basic transport, you know, there is no way more than 50% of the economy is directed towards that. So, you know, fully 50% of our economy is kind of like entertainment, fun, mucking about, you know, stuff that we don't really need. And yet there's this kind of existential crisis that we are, you know, facing kind of the end of the world because we, we kind of want, uh, you know, a better pair of training shoes, you know, so I'm just, can you, can you like figure out or, or suggest yeah. like, you know, uh, like a doorway out of that madness. Well, I I can't. I mean, I think that, you know, there's the famous quote from Kenneth Boulding back in the 70s when a lot of these questions were, were being posed, I think, to be perfectly frank, in a more... Um, in a more honest and sophisticated way than they are right now, where he said, you know, the only people who think that you can have infinite growth on a finite planet are madmen and economists. Um, and here we are, you know, 50 years later, having that same conversation in an unresolved way. Our, our economies mm. in, you know, the Western world are dependent on this kind of growth. And the, there's now, a, a, you know, a debate, I'd call it a debate, although I don't think it's risen very high in the list of questions that people are, you know, average, ordinary folks, certainly in the U.S., are concerned about. But, you know, is there such a thing as green growth or do we need to be talking about degrowth? And I yep. think, you know, this idea that we're going to decouple growth from um, carbon, that seems to me, once again, a, you know, not a professional economist and not a professional you know, energy analysts, that seems theoretically possible, but it does seem very difficult to decouple growth from resource use. And that's really the big question here. So even if you're not using can fossil I, can fuels. I put, can I push yes. you on that though? Because couldn't, couldn't yes, governments please. just like, couldn't governments just like tax, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, if there's something that's, that's threatening us, you know, just kind of tax it, make it expensive or, you know, make a regulation saying you can't cut down the forest. I mean, couldn't government kind of just like come in and save us? Yes. I think that we could, we could, absolutely. You could, you know, you can pose a very, very high carbon tax. You could do that right now and it would shift the economy very, very radically uh, and very dramatically. And it would probably, 
you know, in my view, be a great idea. But it would probably also, or it pot potentially could, it would, it would do two things. First of all, we're already seeing this argument. Well, we're going to have to do, you know, there's a lot of resources that go into even transitioning your energy systems. <laughs> so now we're ha- going to have all these arguments in the U.S. Once again, I, I'm only speaking about the U.S. here about whether we should allow, for example, lithium mining, uh, you know, um, because you need that for, for batteries. Okay. So, so this is not a cost free, nothing, no resource use is cost free, you know, to other species, to, you know, planet earth. But even if we agree, okay, that's, that's better than the alternative, right? You know, lithium mining in the American West is better uh, than, you know, cooking the planet. And I, I, you know, I think most people would agree on that. Um, You know, the question of what the impact would be on the economy and how in a democratic society, you can get people, compel people, ask people, urge people, whatever verb you want to lower what we would call their standard of living. You know, we can argue about, you know, what's really important in life. We can have all these arguments, but we haven't arrived at, and this is very clear and totally going to play out in the U.S. over the next two to four years. You know, how do you get voters who ultimately have to, are going to make the decisions about this to come on board with what many experts would say would be a better uh, a better way to go. And I will offer my own fears that, you know, there's in the U.S. this 50-50 split in the U.S. Senate, and everyone is urging Joe Biden to take as much action as he possibly can on climate change as fast as possible. And I hope he does, but you face the problem that you're going to have an election in two years. And what impact is that going to have? Mm. So, um, Elizabeth, um, with that sobering um, summary of where we are in the United States and with the sobering question that you pose as the undertone or the message of your book, um, we we have to put you on the spot at the okay. end of this conversation okay. yep. and ask you, um, where do you, if, if there is a spectrum between... Um, outrage and optimism. Uh, and, and we think there is a spectrum and we think both are necessary, but if there's a spectrum, where would you situate yourself? Well, I'm, as you, as I think, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm heavy on the outrage and I'm not too, I'm not too high on the optimism right now. Um, even though many people in the U S whom I respect a lot would say, this is a great moment. You know, this is a great moment of a turning point. Um, but I suppose I've spent enough, <laughs> I've been at this long enough, and so have you, um, to be very skeptical of such such talk. How's that? Mm. Very fair. Very, very fair. Um, Elizabeth, how... Um, I, I, I wanted to say how delightful, but actually, can, can, I, can I correct myself and say how delightfully sobering to talk to you today. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for, for calling us all to, um, to further and deeper thinking about how we move forward. Thank you for, uh, such amazing writing that you've done all your Mm. life. And thank you for choosing climate change as the topic of your thinking and writing. Well, Christiana, thank you for having me. And thank you for everything you have done to try 
try uh, to nudge the world forward on this, which is really, I think, very, very, very few people have played a greater role. So um, I'm kind of in awe of you, and I am very impressed that you retain your optimism. Um, having <laughs> seen, having <laughs> seen what you've seen, how's that? I'll just put it that way. We'll just leave it at that. Well, wonderful. Elizabeth, thank you so much again. Thank you from, from all of us here at the podcast. Thanks for thank having you, me. Elizabeth. And just one bit of good news. You know why we're going to win? It's because we have to. <laughs> well, there's that. There is that. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Thank you so much. Bye, Elizabeth. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Ciao, ciao. So how fabulous to get a chance to talk with Elizabeth Colbert, one of the preeminent and most brilliant journalists and writers of our time. I've always loved her books. What do you guys leave that discussion with? You know, before we um, talk about the content of the book or the conversation, could I invite everyone to just pause and imagine what it would be like for us to live under a permanently white sky? It's just an amazing title. And it really deserves a little serious consideration here. Well, in Costa Rica, I'm sorry to say to the two of you, we're used to living under a seriously blue sky. With a few exceptions. Yeah, no, this is an interesting but, point, Christiana. I mean, we have a gray sky We here, have a white sky in the UK a lot all the time. time. We have a gray yeah, sky yeah. all the time. No, you don't. With the, with no, you don't. That's not away. true. That's, right. That's not true because I lived in London for two years and I actually did see a lot of blue sky. The point is that you would have blue sky and then there are, there's rain and there's clouds, but they lift, they stop. She's talking about a white sky that would be white around the planet as a permanent blanket. Just imagine what that would do to us, you know, psychologically. It's just, it's very depressing. It's very, very depressing. In addition to all of the science facts that she brings. But just, you know, consider what it would be like to live under a permanently white sky. Can I tell a a small anecdote, which... um... Some years ago, I was with our friends Leaders Quest and we've had Lindsay Levin on this podcast and I was in China and we were with the the main board of Daimler and we were taking them around. Leaders Quest improves the quality of leadership in the world. And my responsibility was to take a group of people, including the CEO, to a cold press steel factory just outside Beijing. And we went there and we had lots of conversations with the chairman and he clearly you know, there's a big cultural difference in, 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 in China and other places, didn't want to necessarily open up personally. And so he was being quite guarded as, a, as an individual as he met these other leaders. And my job was to kind of coax him to, to show what the transformation had been like and what kind of leadership challenges he faced. And at one point, the CEO of Daimler said to him, well, what are the biggest changes since you were a child? And he said, oh, when I was a child, the sky was blue. Because, of course, in that part of China, it had gone white with all of the emissions. And you could have heard a pin drop in that room as everybody realized what that meant and what he'd seen as a difference. And just the absolute tragedy of living through such an environmental catastrophe that is so far beyond your control. It's really, I hadn't quite made that connection until you just said that, Christiana. It is, and, and, and the point is, you know, when they have a huge international event and they stop coal-fired plants it's blue again, yeah. for a week, the, the, the sky is blue again. And, you know, everyone walks around with a gorgeous smile on the face because 
we are meant, we as human beings, as human creatures, are meant to have a blue roof over our heads, not a white one. It's certainly not a disgusting, polluted one, but that's not what she's talking about. She's talking about geoengineering. Yeah. But either way, blue skies. And there's are no going back. Are we ready to give up our blue skies? No way. Yeah, but I mean, look, she's super clever uh, to choose the, that title for, for this book because... I mean, I, 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 if I speak personally, um, I was taught by the same teacher that you were, Tom, uh, Stephen Harding at Schumacher College. And, uh, uh, you know, I got a good enough knowledge of basic Gaia theory that quite soon I'm thinking to myself, but we're going to have to put some kind of something between us and the sun. You have to. Uh, I looked up, uh, I made a presentation on it in 2006. Uh, some people were saying you, you put um, an atomic power station on the moon and make mirrors that you fire off on an electron uh, rocket launcher to the L1 Lagrange point between the sun and the earth to block the solar radiation. I mean, it's crazy stuff. 27,000 tons of stuff got to go to the moon. It's never going to happen. But people have looked at this, but the sulfate aerosols, so to say, in the, in the atmosphere, it struck me were a kind of certainty, like we would just have to do that. Like we just, we will have no choice. It always struck me that that was a horrific thought. What I never knew until uh, I heard about the cover of this book was that it would turn the sky white. I mean, the point she's really making is that there's half of us is expecting to make these crazy geoengineering interventions. And at the other half, you know, you've got to realize that they're completely unacceptable and might alter our whole way of life. And it would be just nightmarish. It's, um, you know, I come from a sort of medical family and there's some of the worst kinds of medical interventions, this sort of kind of what's sometimes called heroic surgery, where a, an overambitious surgeon will try and perform some super complex operation that really doesn't make the patient better at all, makes the patient worse. And that's how I feel about this geoengineering. And so it's got to be like a wake-up call to us that actually if we want to keep the sky blue, you know, now's the time to focus on getting the new laws, the new regulations, the changes, the new technologies, the new business. We've all got to focus because Elizabeth does a great job of issuing a warning to us. It's a great point, actually. That would be a very good consumer engagement platform, wouldn't it? Cut your energy use, keep the sky blue. We haven't quite <laughs> It's actually, it makes perfect sense. Cut your energy use, keep the sky blue. I mean, just one other thing to, to fix on that is... Um, it, one of the things that Stefan uh, said when I asked him was that actually um, the aerosols reducing energy from the sun doesn't deal with the problem of oceanic acidification. Mm. So, um, you know, actually we, we've, we, we really need to cut greenhouse gas emissions substantially and start sequestering carbon. There's no other option. You can't put a barrier up because it doesn't stop the ocean acidifying. Mm. You know, Paul, you said um, it's unacceptable to do geoengineering. The, I think the unacceptability comes a step before it is frankly, at least to me, unacceptable that we would put ourselves in the situation yeah. in which geoengineering becomes unavoidable. That's the piece, you know, that I have a difficulty with. I mean, once we're there, then what are we going to do? But um, she, in, in, her, in her book, she raises the question, are we there at that point in which geoengineering, various forms of it, are now inevitable and we should start seriously in investing into them. She doesn't answer the question, but she definitely puts the question there. And my answer to that is we 
put ourselves in the situation mm. of making that necessary and inevitable. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, as, the, we, to go back to where we were before, 417 parts per million, if we're not there, we're close. It's not going to be long yeah. unless we do something about it now. Well, I have a friend who's, who's uh, you know, sort of really good at tech and they're now looking at sequestration. More and more people, I think, are looking at sequestration. It's it's the new kind of frontier for people interested in, you know, technologies. So, so we you know, we can pump down carbon, potentially the most incredible sky. That's what we were talking about with Vicky Holub from uh, Oxy. But I mean, the other thing just to mention, and, and we haven't got time to go into this now, but I think it's a great topic, is that... Um, Elizabeth was talking uh, in, in some of her uh, uh, narrative about uh, degrowth, uh, and there are whole questions about whether we need to uh, it sort of challenge some notion of growth in terms of, of 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 consuming more, which we probably all agree with. But whether growth, as it's sort of measured in financial terms, is actually um, not really about consuming more, but about the change in society. So there are really complicated questions here. You know, growth is something we we love plants growing, we love our children growing, whatever. You know, growth is generally good, and yet suddenly there's this idea that growth is bad. So I think we need to get into some kind of right relationship with growth. That's an economic argument. It's a philosophical argument. It's a personal argument but it's fundamental because you know there ain't no way seven billion humans can go on consuming like people in the oecd do so we've got to come up with a plan pretty quick well i think you've just put the you know your finger on it because it's about consumption in industrialized countries it's not consumption in developing countries so you know th those developing countries do need to continue their growth until they bring their people out of poverty um, so it's it's not about degrowth; it's about decoupling growth mm -hmm. from uh, yeah. from emissions. So it's it's separating GDP from GHG, right? So that we can continue, certainly in developing countries, to have the growth that brings um, quality of life to those people living there, especially to those still under the poverty line, some under the extreme poverty line. But in industrialized countries, I think the concept of enough is enough is something that we really have to embrace. Mm. I think this would be a fascinating topic for a for a couple of podcasts to explore because it's such a hot topic, right, around this issue of growth. Of where can, how can we how can we get on top of managing the climate issue while the concept of growth is still out there? And totally take your point, Christiana, that there's a difference between industrialized countries and developing countries, but there's still a principle, right, that our entire economy is based on growth and where does that lead us in the end? So I think Paul Dickinson investigates is maybe the, the subtext for that, but we should we should figure it out. Send me off. Christiana said enough is enough, so I'm going to go and travel the world <laughs> and find out really if enough is enough or if enough is not enough. But probably enough is enough if you look into it. But you might have to sort of check in with a few very, very rich people to just see if they really agree. Just to make sure they really feel like they've got enough. Right. Okay. Any more items of business before we go to our musical interlude at the end of this episode? Well, just, just a final thing. Shout out to Kim Stanley Robinson, who predicted basically all of this stuff about geoengineering in his fantastic book, um, The Ministry of the Future. Yeah, seriously. Right. So this week we have a fantastic piece of music for you called Easy Now from Sonda Urians. Sonda Urians is a singer-songwriter from the US. His debut album, Beasts, is about healing from depression and coming out stronger. Urians explains it's an album about a fractured personality somehow trying to put himself back together. This song, Easy Now, is about a change in perspectives and a reminder that compassion is necessary, whether on a personal or wider level. As ever, we have 
the artist himself here to explain a bit more about the song and then we really hope you enjoy the music. Thank you for joining us again this week. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Bye. Bye. When I wrote Easy Now a few years ago, it was a uh, very personal song that I wrote during a very tough time and it was meant as a kind of reminder to step back and breathe and to look at things from outside of myself. Since then, I guess it's taken on a whole new meaning in light of everything we've gone through. Um, but I think the message is the same, um, to take a step back and try to look at every situation with a sense of compassion and reason rather than be constantly swept up in a way by our own emotions and the constant spectacle of media. I have a lot of faith in human creativity. Our creative minds have helped us overcome so much adversity when stimulated and nurtured, and we're really capable of the most amazing solutions. If we could match our creativity and our ingenuity with our potential for love and compassion, I think really incredible things could happen. We slept on the hard, hard ground We're crumbling all around Easy now Easy now we ran through the dead of night Hearts pounding funeral rites Sing easy now Easy now
So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. The track you just heard was Easy Now by Sonder Yurians. So Sonder is a very, very talented musician. He's composed music for two of my favorite shows, Ozark and On Becoming God in Central Florida, which you should check out, if not just for the music. But among many, many other incredible shows and films, as Tom mentioned, he's releasing his debut album, Beasts. So I've got a link for you to check that out in the show notes. So go check out that record. Enjoy, spin it, go, go, go. And speaking of music, next week, we have a very special music episode on the way. We're celebrating all of the artists and music we've had on the podcast so far in two distinct volumes. So think of it like a mixtape meets a double vinyl. And yes, I'm old enough to have made mixtapes, actual mixtapes. I mean, my good years, I mostly burnt MP3s onto CDRs for friends and prospective romantic interests once I got iTunes. But anyway, I digress. Your mixtape, road trip CD, double vinyl, Spotify playlist of outrage and optimism music is coming next week. So hit subscribe so that you don't miss it. Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production. Our executive producer is Sharon Johnson and our producer is Clay Carnell. So Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Laura Richardson, Marina Mancilla-Germán, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, and John Ward. And our hosts are Paul Dickinson, Cristiana Figueres, and Tom Rivet-Karnak. Thank you so much to our guest this week, Elizabeth Colbert. Elizabeth's New Yorker article on Christiana is absolutely required reading, you know, if you ask me. I, I have a link for you below to that, but also to her latest book, Under a White Sky. You can grab a copy. The link is waiting for you now. This book is 100% being added to the Stubborn Optimists book club. More on that coming soon. So I say it every week. We are on social media posting like every day with the latest going on in climate news. So the fun does not stop after this podcast ends in just a moment. Go follow us now on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Global Optimism. We're creating content, sharing things, making these strange digital landscapes just a bit more optimistic. Okay, that is a wrap. Now, we mentioned on the podcast a review that was written on Apple Podcasts, and we'd love to hear more from all of you. So go to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and write a review. We read every single one. And sometimes they make it on the show. So have fun with it. And next week, music. We'll see you then.